wore mirrored sunglasses. Aviators. With a black suit, a white shirt, a clip-on tie, and loafers. It was the day before Thanksgiving in 1971. The mystery man approached a ticket agent at Portland International Airport and paid cash for a one-way ticket to Seattle, signing his name Dan Cooper. Once he was on the plane, he took the middle seat in the last row. It was a little after three o'clock. Not quite happy hour, but Cooper ordered a drink from the stewardess, a bourbon and soda, while he was waiting for the flight to take off. He took out a cigarette and began to smoke. It was the 70s, after all. Then just minutes later, he handed a note to the stewardess, who'd been seated just behind him in the crew quarters. She thought he was trying to flirt. But when she opened the paper, she was shocked to read his demands. He said he had a bomb in his briefcase, and he wanted her to sit next to him. Stunned, the stewardess did as she was told. Cooper opened a cheap attache case. Inside, she could see several red-colored sticks and a mass of wires that just could have been a homemade bomb. And then she was taking a note to the captain. Cooper was demanding four parachutes and $200,000. He indicated he would only allow the plane to land and the passengers to leave safely once they had the money and the parachutes waiting on the tarmac. The plane circled over SeaTac Airport while the FBI contacted a local bank and a local parachuting school. Once they had the items ready, the plane was cleared for landing. Cooper allowed all of the passengers to get off, but kept several crew members back and demanded they set a course for Mexico City. He told the crew to stay in the cockpit and not to come out, leaving Cooper alone in the main cabin. It was a long flight. They'd have to stop in Reno to refuel. And when they did, they discovered Cooper and the cash had vanished. The only American hijacker to ever get away. After decades of investigations, considering more than 800 suspects, the question remains, what happened to D.B. Cooper? And could new scientific techniques help them finally solve this mystery. We know what we know from what the FBI has done all those years. And, and now it's time to, you know, maybe give someone else a chance. A team of citizen sleuths is now on the case, getting a first-hand look at the FBI's cache of evidence, debunking theories, and getting closer and closer to learning the truth. So all of this points away from the idea that he just was an idiot, jumped out of the plane and smashed into the ground, and that was the end of the story. The story really continues now, and all of our research points that way. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Kim, you've heard of Occam's Razor, you know, the principle that of two explanations that account for all the facts, the simpler one is more likely to be correct. But this case flies in the face of that principle. Um, but before we get to this intriguing case, and I love attache case that you had in your <laughs> scene center and the cigarettes. It's very it. 70s. It's so 70s. And, so, and, and it's such a huge case, so much drama. But before we get to that, 
I wanted to peel back the curtain of the scene of the crime podcast a little bit um, to give kudos to a listener, but also to let you know there could be some episodes if you're a new listener to the show you might have missed. So a few days ago, a listener of the show contacted Kim and I. Her name is Missy, and we love you, Missy. Yes, Just thank you, Missy. <laughs> so she messaged us like in a huff, like, "Hey, I love you guys, love you guys so much," and but I can't get any more downloads past June 9th. And so we were like, "What?" But we figured out that the problem was there was something wrong with the RSS feed. And so now, though, now that we've got to the bottom of it, we just wanted to remind you that you can our show goes back to January. Please go back and binge on the other ones because they're really good. So, so before we get to the details in this D.B. Cooper case, I just have to clear up one thing, and that is the name, hmm. D.B. Cooper. There's no reason to think that that is actually the name that this guy went by. On his airplane ticket, he actually wrote Dan Cooper. And shortly after the hijacking, there was a newspaper that got it wrong, apparently. They wrote D.B. Cooper accidentally, and somehow, I guess it was just catchier than Dan. So everybody started calling him that. And that's what we still call him today, and so that's what we'll call him in the episode. But just so you know, we realize it's not actually accurate. It's Dan Cooper is the pseudonym that he used on the airplane ticket. So after the hijacker had let those passengers off in Seattle, the crew was locked in the cockpit, DB was in the main cabin, and they were headed to Mexico City with that stop in Reno to refuel. It was dark out by this point and very cold. It was November and it was raining. Just a short time into the flight, the crew noticed there was some kind of vibration happening with the plane and there was a change in cabin pressure. But they didn't really think too much of it. I mean, they were flying through a storm, so these things happen. But when they landed in Reno, they realized their captor had vanished into the night. The plane was a Boeing 727, and that's important because that particular model had a rear hatch with a stairwell. The hatch was hanging open when they landed in Reno. It had actually been damaged on landing. Two of the four parachutes were gone, along with the cash. But who would jump out in a storm with a windshield below zero in the dead of night over a mountain range? Well, and here's the thing, too. Like, he's pot committed at this point. Like, what did he plan for the rain? We don't know. Did he know all these, you know, variables? He, if he was jumping, he had to know that the terrain is going to be pretty, pretty crazy. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of speculation, actually, about why he wore that suit. That's one of the things that is driving, they call them Cooper files, people who are really interested in trying to figure this out. Uh, some people speculate that he was super inexperienced mm -hmm. and just didn't realize what he was getting himself into. And that's why he was in a suit rather than something that was more appropriate for the terrain and the weather. Other people speculate that he knew that if he landed safely, he was going to need to hitchhike. And so he wanted to wear clothing that would be more likely to have somebody pick him up. Mm -hmm. But again, there's there's a lot of little tidbits, and we'll get to more of those throughout the story, that have people wondering why. And if he was a complete mastermind or if he was kind of a dunce, you know? <laughs> it could go either way. Yeah. <laughs> so the FBI began this massive manhunt for the man in black based on the flight path and the timing of those strange vibrations that they felt during the flight. They identified an area where they believed that DB had jumped, but it was 37 square miles of rugged terrain. They had hundreds of people out there searching for days, if not weeks, 
no sign of him. So when you say rugged terrain, is this like evergreen trees? Like, yes. It, so it's p- typical Pacific Northwest forest where, yes. you know, you could, you know, get into a, a tree and be hung there forever until somebody finds your body, right? Correct. So this is southern Washington, um, sort of along the path of I-5 towards Portland. Uh, probably, I would say, maybe 30 or 40 miles short of Portland. In that, I mean, generally, right, super mm-hmm. generally, but yeah. sort of in that vicinity. So in the southwest corner of Washington state. Now, there was no sign of their suspect in that search, no sign of his parachute, no sign of the ransom money, nothing. They eventually gave up and decided to start looking for suspects instead. So just to flip it and start with a suspect rather than trying to find him, then figure out who he is. Let's figure out who he is. Then maybe we yeah, can find him. Yeah, because you're literally looking for a needle in the haystack yes. at that point. And there were plenty of suspects to be had. Over the next five years, they would identify more than 800 people that they thought could have done it. Most of them investigators were able to eliminate, but it still left dozens that may or may not have been D.B. Cooper. In the spring of 1980, nearly a decade after the hijacking, there was a major discovery. A family spending the day on the beach at Tina Bar on the Columbia River, just about five miles outside Portland, There was a boy digging a hole for a fire pit, and he found three wads of $20 bills buried in the sand, nearly $6,000 worth. That little boy, Brian Ingram, is now grown, and he's still involved with the D.B. Cooper investigation, trying to figure out how that money got into the water and how it made its way onto Tina Bar underneath the sand. Got a pack of of, uh, bills on there, trying to find out how buoyant it is and, and as far as what's the distance it's going to travel. Uh, we've seen find its location right here where it seems like it's wanting to come right back to us. And it happens to be right at the spot that I found the money, uh, 1980. So they were able to identify the serial numbers on the found money as being part of the ransom that was given to the hijacker. This is kind of a funny side note in this story, one of many, as we're finding out. The bank where they got the cash apparently had kept $250,000 on hand in what they call their ransom fund, and they had logged the serial numbers ahead of time of all the bills that were in this ransom fund. So when the cash was handed over, they already had all the information they would need to track it down later on. I'm just amazed that this family turned it in. Like, can you imagine <laughs> being that little kid and you're just like, I mean, I remember looking around for little rocks. It took them a little like time that. to oh, turn it in. Oh, it it wasn't immediately. It was like, I think they said a week or two later. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because and, and I'm so glad that they did because it, it leapt it, the case forward. But I mean, you see this pile of cash and well, it wasn't just a pile of cash, too. Apparently, it was pretty deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Several of the bills that were on the outside of each clump of bills, or each um, pack of bills was completely depleted to the point where they couldn't even like really tell what it was. Okay, but so it wasn't there were crisp, some cold hard cash. Right. But there were some bills in the middle of the packs where you could identify the serial numbers and all that. So that's where they were able to get some of that evidence from, but uh yeah, really interesting. Now, what about the rest of the cash? They they still haven't found it. Wow. So years ago, they basically decided that this investigation wasn't worth the money anymore. The FBI officially ended the search for D.B. Cooper and for all that cash, redirecting the money that had been budgeted for the hijacking to other cases. But Agent Larry Carr at the Seattle office didn't want to give up. He has been trying to keep this case going with no budget. And he's the reason a new team of citizen sleuths was put on the case. 
You know, the whole goal is to start bringing some science, some new technology into the case. Uh, the investigation's long over. Uh, we know <laughs> what we know from what the FBI uh, has done all those years. And, and now it's time to, you know, maybe give someone else a chance. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a great mystery. You know, what happened to this guy? The last thing we knew is he had $200,000 and uh, bailed out of the back of a 727 uh, November, November 24th, 1971. Uh, and then from there, we don't know. If we can find resolution to the case without allocating resources, without sending FBI manpower to the investigation, but come up with an answer, then why wouldn't we do that? So in July of 2016, the FBI officially closed their investigation of the case. But years before that, they had basically cut the funding to the point where nothing was happening, even though it was technically still an open investigation. There wasn't really any money allocated for it. So nothing was happening. Now, about 12 years ago, they put together this team of volunteer scientists led by Tom Kay. He's a paleontologist who, at the time, was working with the Burke Museum in Seattle. Back in 2008, there was a group of uh, Cooper files on a forum that were actually talking to the lead investigator at the FBI at the time, who was uh, Special Agent Larry Carr. They asked him, had anybody ever analyzed the money that was on Tina Barr? And he said no. Well, then they asked him, would you allow someone outside the FBI to analyze it? And amazingly, he said yes. So that led to a search for scientists that could work on the money and do some analysis on it. They approached several people and they said no. Uh, they came to me and I uh, said yes, thinking it would be a, a couple week thing. And now, you know, almost 10 years later here, <laughs> we're still kind of looking at this case. And that tells you what a big mystery it is. And it's had him wrapped up for over 10 years. Kay says his work in paleontology dovetailed nicely into this investigation. He studied dinosaurs and what happens to their bones after they're buried. In this case, he was trying to figure out what happened to money after it had been buried. Not only did they get access to the cash itself, but also to the FBI's archives on the case. So we were looking at pictures from the time of the event, pictures of the money site where it was dug up. We saw the parachute that was left on the plane. We saw the tie, the tie that Cooper left on the plane, probably inadvertently because he was very careful to take back the matchbook covers and everything else. And one of the things we did on the tie was we took sticky samples using tape of the particles on the tie, and that led to some new discoveries later. So D.B. Cooper, as he said, was really meticulous about not leaving evidence on the plane. He even took the, the handwritten notes that he had mm -hmm. given to the flight attendant. He took those with him so they wouldn't have it for evidence. But for some reason, he left behind that clip-on tie. It's one of several contradictions that continues to stump people about this case. Did he do it on purpose? Or did he just forget the tie? Whatever the reason, Kay says it held valuable details about the identity of the mystery hijacker that had been eluding authorities for decades. Now, the one good thing about a tie is you never wash it. So everywhere you go, everything that lands on that tie sits there forever. And that's why we would be able to look at thousands of particles on the tie. But there were some that were really unusual that popped out. One of them was metallic titanium. Now, titanium today is very common. You find it on all kinds of things. But back in 1971, it was extremely rare. It was really only used in military aircraft and chem the chemical industry where it was replacing stainless steel. So Cooper went from being anybody in the country to having been involved in management in one of these types of industries because only management or engineers wore ties in the workplace where you get these particles on them. 
So a lot of Cooper files believe that D.B. Cooper was either a manager at a metalworking plant or possibly at a rail yard where you might also find that kind of metal, but they weren't done yet. We also, in a subsequent investigation, found out that there were these things called rare earth elements on his tie that were most likely used in the phosphor screens of televisions. But because we found a lot of stainless steel also on his tie, we know that it wasn't a regular kind of television that he was involved in, along with the titanium. It had to be something fairly specialized. That's so interesting. <laughs> you know, I know that it's, it's such a breakthrough in the case, because, but it's so, such a simple thing to think about a tie. Because I waited tables when I was in college, and I had part of the uniform was to wear a tie. Did you ever wash it? I never <laughs> washed it. I never even untied it. I just pulled the string every time before my shift and just like... <laughs> well, in this case, it was a clip-on, so I, he didn't even have to do that. <laughs> there you go. But I mean, it's so interesting how DNA evidence and how you know, even though this is almost a 50-year case, it's still very much could potentially be solvable with technology and science. So it's really exciting. It's not that we're getting new evidence, really. It's just that technology is coming along to the point where we can get new information off the evidence that we already have. And you know what's a shame is that I heard, and, and you can confirm if this is true, that there were cigarette butts that he left behind Mm-hmm. But that they were lost. Now, if the, if we would have that's had those true, they were lost. Butts, oh my gosh, yep. there's his DNA right there, and you could do a genius. But of course, that would be too easy, right? Yeah, that I think that's really interesting, though. That that is the one thing that they may have had DNA on, and it was lost. I know it's kind of shocking. I know it. It is shocking. But if you think about it, I mean, they weren't thinking about DNA. They were just thinking, yeah. But they were actually thinking about things like fingerprints because they tried to find the glass that he drank from. Oh, he got right. that, that drink yeah. at the beginning of the flight. Yeah. But they said that basically it had been mixed in with all the other glasses by the oh, time right. they were looking for it. And so they weren't able to identify which one was his. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you'd think they would keep the cigarette butts because there could have been some kind of evidence. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, little by little, they were narrowing down their field of suspects, but they still... They don't have a name. So Kay and his team started to take a closer look at the cash that was found at Tina Bar. It was in three bundles. They were each wrapped with a rubber band. A lot of the bills, as we said, had disintegrated. They were really badly damaged. But there were several in the middle of each bundle that were in pretty good shape that they could do a lot of testing on. The money that was found on Tina Bar nine years after the Cooper hijacking is one of the biggest enigmas in the case. And many people think it's a bigger mystery than Cooper himself. So in the case of Cooper jumping out of the plane, we pretty much know what happened. We kind of know A to B. We don't know Cooper's name, but we know his alias, Dan Cooper. But in the case of the money, this money ended up on Tina Barr. Now, he originally jumped with $200,000 in $20 bills, but the money that was on Tina Barr was a little less than $6,000 wrapped in three bundles. The money was also found approximately 20 miles away from where he jumped. So now we have this really weird situation where you say, why was it only about $6,000? Why was it in three bundles buried in the sand? Why was it 20 miles away? And how could it possibly get there? So originally, the FBI's theory was that Cooper died in the jump. This is something that they have thought for decades. This is something that um, Agent Carr, who's kind of the lead on this investigation today, still believes it's the most likely scenario that Cooper died. The money fell into the stream. That led to the Columbia River, and it eventually washed up on the beach. But... 
our analysis shows that first of all, there's no rivers that get up to the area where he jumped. So that wiped that out. The rubber bands that were found on the three bundles will disintegrate after a few months out in the wild. So it couldn't have taken years for it to get to Tina Bar. And the more things we uncovered about the money and the analysis that we did, the more it showed that the money getting there has no logical uh, theory behind it. So that was a problem. So instead of helping to solve this mystery, it just got even more confusing. Yeah, well, because it basically is saying it couldn't just bury itself. It couldn't have just floated to that spot and buried itself. Exactly. So Kay had another idea, another investigative technique that he thought might help him figure out where the money had been over that nine years between when Cooper jumped and when the money was found in the sand, looking for microscopic creatures called diatoms. Diatoms are a form of algae that are found in water all over the world. These diatoms grow a glass shell around them. And the shell comes in zillions of shapes and sizes, and that means there's thousands of species. The other thing happens after the algae dies, the glass shell lives on. So even if you've got a bill from 50 years ago, the glass diatom shells will still be on there. and We can identify them down to the species. So what's come about recently is we realized that there's actually different species at different times of year in the Columbia River. So that gave us the idea, well, could we look at the species of diatoms we found on the bills, look at the species when they bloom in the Columbia River at different times of the year, and connect the dots between when the money was in the river just before it got buried? Well, now, what we would have expected was that around the November timeframe when Cooper jumped, that the money would have hit the water and got buried shortly after that. But that turned out not to be the case. The types of diatoms that we found on the Cooper money actually bloom in the spring, which is about six months away from the skyjacking event. So something happened months later, and that disconnects the money burial from the jump event. And that's what allows us to discount a lot of the theories. Theories that D.B. Cooper had buried the money right after the hijacking so he could come back for it later, or maybe that it had fallen into a stream during the jump, like he had somehow lost it during the jump and it floated down the river. So how did the money come to be buried in the sand? If one of those theories is correct, how did it get to be in the sand? And where was the rest of that $200,000? One other theory that has been growing in popularity amongst Cooper files in recent years is that the hijacker did land in some kind of body of water, a stream, a river, something downstream from the Columbia River at Tina Bar. There are a lot of them in that area of southern Washington, but the theory is he didn't survive the jump. Cooper, the money, the parachute, they all went into the water, floated down to the Columbia River. Now, one problem with this theory, though, is that the area where he likely jumped out of the plane was downstream from Tina Bar. The current would have taken him the other way. But at the time, the Columbia River was one of the busiest shipping canals in the country. So the theory goes that the parachute got hung up on one of those ships and was dragged along the river. A few bundles of money dropped out along the way, winding up on Tina Bar. But then Cooper, the parachute, and the rest of the cash went all the way down to the end of the line and washed out into the ocean, never to be seen again. But Kay says he has his doubts. So the FBI, because it's an unsolved case, would, would, would like to kind of dismiss it. And one of their favorite theories was that he died in the jump because it was such a crazy thing to do at night. Even a, a professional skydiver would not be too excited about doing that. 
He was cloudy. He couldn't see the ground. He had no orientation ability. The things that we've uncovered are showing that more than likely he did walk out of those woods. I mean, the money got out of there. It got 20 miles out of the woods from where we believe he jumped. We never found a parachute in 50 years. So 50 years down the road here, we have the advantage of saying, look, the area he jumped in is not that remote. People are logging it, hunting it, doing things recreationally there. And we've never found anything. The money itself says that something happened and it didn't stay where Cooper jumped. We don't know exactly how it got there, but it points to some unusual activity happening. So all of this points away from the idea that he just was an idiot, jumped out of the plane and smashed into the ground. And that was the end of the story. The story really continues now. And all of our research points that way. What it boils down to now is that, you know, a lot of the evidence has people trying to create a profile of the suspect, of Mm -hmm. D.B. Cooper, what kind of person he was so they can eventually identify him. One of the theories is that he might not even be an American. There's reason to believe he's French, Canadian. Mm. (laughs) Oh, oh, I think I've heard of this because of the Dan Cooper comic books. Right. Yes. So there was a a comic book series in French that was in print at the time that was Dan Cooper, and it was about a skydiving daredevil. So there's a connection there, right? And Mm -hmm. then the other reason that people think that is because when he asked for the cash, and again, he took all of the ransom notes or the demand notes with him. So we don't have them written down. We don't have the exact language. But when the stewardess said this is what was written in the note, she said that he requested $200,000 in $20 bills of American currency. So why would you say American currency if you're an American? Yes. I, I, you know what? I wrote that down, negotiable American cur- yes. currency. And that's so interesting because as I read that when I was like doing a quick Wikipedia, D.B. Cooper, I was like, who says negotiable? What is negotiable American currency? And apparently it's we never use that in America. But um, yeah. So yeah. but but there are also reasons to think that maybe he wasn't French, that he was American, but he just had like, you know, he didn't have an accent. He, You mm-hmm. know, there, there are other reasons to think that he wasn't French Canadian. And that's the mystique of this is that you don't know if he's a genius or if it's just exactly. all ad hoc. Because another profile had said, well, people who usually do ransom are desperate for money. And that's why they do these types of crimes, because they, they're like gamblers. They need to get money quick and they're willing to take. I mean, who jumps out of an airplane? <laughs> well, and, you know? and there's there's another theory about whether or not he was either a professional parachuter or possibly paramilitary or maybe even part of the CIA. Yeah. And that comes from the fact that he chose a Boeing 727. Those are one of the only planes that have that rear hatch with the stairwell out the back. Mm -hmm. The CIA apparently used to use those to drop people into Vietnam. Yeah. And so if he was somebody who was in Vietnam at that time, he might be aware of the way that the Boeing 727 is built. And so that might be why he chose that plane. There's also reason to think possibly he worked at Boeing. Remember, he had all those Those metal metal things on Uh him. And then also... The other interesting thing is the style of parachute that he chose. So he asked for four parachutes. There's some speculation the reason he asked for four is because he wanted them to think he was taking a hostage with him. Mm-hmm. So, which is which is smart because you want to make sure that all of those parachutes are not going to be sabotaged 
Because exactly. You're, you're, once you jump out of that plane, you better hope that ripcord works. And sure enough, they gave him four, well, what they thought were four good parachutes. Turned out one of them wasn't, but they didn't realize that. But basically, they gave him what they thought were four good parachutes because they thought, well, shoot, if he's taken a hostage, yeah, we can't mess with the parachute. Yeah, so it's a good thing he didn't make three other people jump out with him because yeah. one of them would have just been like... So there were two main parachutes and two backup parachutes. The two main parachutes were of different styles, and people are making a lot out of which parachute he chose. The one he chose was a little bit older, a little bit harder to use, but one that is frequently used by the military. Oh. It also is not one that has handles to where you can control where it's drifting. So it mm -hmm. makes it less desirable because it's you can't control it. It's going to go wherever it's going to go. You have no say. The one he did not choose, which a lot of people who are professional skydivers say there's no way he was a professional skydiver because he would have picked the newer chute, the one that had the handles that you could you could control you where could you're control landing. It. And also where the ripcord was, where the, the handle was for the ripcord was just easier to, to get to, to grab. And so it was like a safer, easier to use type parachute. And mm -hmm. so they say, you know, if he knew anything about parachuting, he would have picked that newer one. But then other people say, but if he was paramilitary and he was used to using that other style, he would yeah, have picked I mean, that that's one. How or, all these... or he was a total idiot who just picked the wrong parachute. I don't think there's just no way that that's I, I don't believe that at all. This guy was smart just based on his how he was calm, cool and collected as he's described when he goes and orders that bourbon and soda and yeah. has the cigarettes and is like nice to the stewardesses and is very relaxed as he's hijacking his plane. And he has a plan, like even though, but but then there's so many anomalies to that plan. Why didn't he have rugged gear to wear? You know, when he when you jump out, there's this thing on Wikipedia where it shows the plane and it shows the hatch come down and then it shows this little stick figure like going out and then it just flies off and you're like. That's about right. In the dark. In the dark, in the rain, in the Pacific Northwest. I mean. But there are skydivers who've actually gone and done the DB scooper jump yeah. in, in the suit and tie because they wanted to see if it would be possible to survive or whatever. Uh, and they did it. And they said, yeah, you know what? If you know what you're doing, yeah, you could totally do this. Well, this is an interesting side note because I think that when you look at the DB Coopers and these kind of anti-heroes, um, it's 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 kind of like Jesse James, you know, these bad dudes who become sort of folklore heroes. Now, I looked at this piece. It's called Criminals as Heroes Linking Symbol to Structure by Dr. Paul Kuistra. And I'm sorry if I've just murdered that last name. But supposedly there's a phenomenon for the heroic criminal and how it happens in our society. The Robin Hood? Yes, exactly. Because there is a sort of a secret sauce or, or conditions in society which cause regular people to root for criminals. The piece explains that these lawbreakers are sort of like a litmus test when there's a perceived or real concept of extra legal justice or political unfairness in situations when a public feels powerless, when the perception of law as unjust is widespread, the heroic criminal may emerge as a national figure of epic proportions, which, of course, you know, the media just fuels that and, you know, they try to make money off of it. And there were articles at the time that were talking about how, you know, this era, 1971, you know, we're just we're coming off the Vietnam War, you know, the whole like uh, flower power movement is still happening. So there was a lot of this 
protest against the government and this and the systems that that were in place at the time. So that this fits right in with that. Yeah, and so in like in the case of Jesse James, for example, it was the violence and hatred of the Civil War that led Jesse and his gang to commit these crimes. And obviously, people around that time period could relate to it. Although they never, they were not the Robin Hood, you know, Jesse James and his gang. They really were like anti everybody except for we want money. But the DB Cooper so wouldn't fit into that particular narrative. But Mental Floss did a piece on what makes certain criminals like the Barefoot Bandit. They uh-huh. actually published this right after he was arrested. And if you guys are interested in that case, Kim did a great job researching the Barefoot Bandit a couple of weeks ago. So check that out. Um, but there, there, there are five things that they found that is that kind of litmus test when society is like, yeah, we're totally into you. So the outlaw is a victim of injustice from authorities and is getting the payback the man for unfair treatment. So the masses get a rush living vicariously through the criminal. Again, according to the piece I referenced earlier, the police or the victims of crime have to be seen as oppressors to the masses or having some kind of unfair advantage. That it doesn't matter whether the criminal himself experienced a particular injustice. So it doesn't have to be real that he's not a Robin Hood. They just have to be like, yeah. Like if you steal from Enron. (laughs) Who's going to argue with that? (laughs) Okay, so then the or the outlaw. The second one is the outlaw helps common people. Number three, the outlaw is sacrificing his life for a political stance. And then number four and five, I think, really fit D.B. Cooper. The outlaw does things the average Joe would love to try if he had the courage. (laughs) And that the outlaw's outlandish adventures provide entertainment like a long-running serial that lasts almost 50 years. Yeah, totally. And do you know there's a town in southern Washington, I believe it's called Ariel, Ariel, something like that, uh, where they have a yearly D.B. Cooper festival still. Doesn't surprise me. Again, (laughs) the marketing aspect. So we've got that in spades. And I think, you know, people uh, root for D.B. Cooper because he was smart and cool and collected. And we have this mystery. And he was like the men in black guy, you know, the black suit and the aviator sunglasses. Before the men in black became popular, right? So... Um, But in the wake of multiple copycat hijackings in 1972, the year after... I was going to tell you about one of those. Okay, well, then I'll let you... (laughs) Well, it's okay. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to share, you know, we haven't talked much about all of the dozens of suspects that the FBI was able to identify. And I just wanted to kind of bring up a couple of those just so you can kind of get an idea of what they were looking at and why they were able to... Um, discount some of the suspects and not others. So one example is about six months after the D.B. Cooper hijacking, there was another hijacking. I believe it was in Texas. That person was caught and claimed to be D.B. Cooper. They Mm. actually charged him with the D.B. Cooper hijacking and the other hijacking. Let me guess, that case fell apart. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the D.B. Cooper part of it did. So they had him on the Texas hijacking for sure. Like they had him on that one. Um, But for several reasons, including the fact that he couldn't possibly have been in the area during the D.B. Cooper hijacking, they discounted him from being that hijacker. Mm -hmm. But there were people who wanted to take credit for the D.B. Cooper hijacking, and there were people who were identified as suspects who didn't want to admit to anything. And one of those is Robert Rastrak. He actually died at the age of 75 just a few years ago. But... Even his family, his sister even turned him in to the FBI as possibly being D.B. Cooper. So there are a lot of people that they have looked at over the years, even ones that have been charged with the crime. But every time they've said, mm, nope, 
not our guy. And if you go to the FBI's website, which I did because I was so curious, it it it's like there are so many. You at first I was like, okay, I'm reading this intently. Oh my gosh, I'm reading this one. Then by the time it gets to like 20, you're just like, okay, <laughs> let me guess. Not him, right? So um, I, I think that um, we're going to have a link to all of these. Well, and the Citizen Sleuths website where you can really see all of the information that Kay and his team were able to put together um, and where they're going with it. I mean, they're still investigating, so you never know. I think it's amazing. We've seen Citizen Sleuths. I mean, I think in the past, you know, they've been looked down upon, you know, people who like are go into the chat rooms and get really involved. But they're like solving cases left and right. I mean, maybe not left and right, but definitely a lot, you know, props to people who, you know, it's like a project. You know, you kind of get your hooks into something. And, and <laughs> I'm one of them now, like after <laughs> because Tom K., is is like the new Sherlock Holmes. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, as he was talking about it and it's like there's just new ways to investigate, new angles to think about that are really exciting. And the funny thing is, after all of these years and all of this speculation and all the investigations that have happened, the evidence that the FBI has is in one file box. What? One box. That's all they have on this case. It's the parachute and the tie, that tie and the cash that was found on the beach. And that's pretty. And then they have photos. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be to work on a case for so long, have so little evidence, have so many people calling in with tips that you have to run down and you know they're just like, OK, here's another one that we got to run down. But it's kind of amazing they got as far as they did with so little evidence. Yeah, that's true. Um, one thing I think is interesting about the case is that they did not even announced to the public for almost 20 years about the tie in the clip. It was in 1991. See, I told you I was turning into a citizen. You slip. are. <laughs> uh, but I just, I mean, what do you think about them holding on to, not in just this particular case, but just cases in general where it's like they don't release any information? Well, I think they didn't release that particular piece of information because they wanted to hold something back. Like, you know, what we've talked about with Cloyd, our pimp detective, you yeah. know, where he says you you have to hold something back because you do get false confessions. And you got to have a way of knowing whether or not it's it's the real deal. And one way of doing that is to hold back a little bit of information and then see, does that person know the tie was left on the plane? Or do they think the tie, you know, that, that he was still wearing the tie when he hit the ground? Because yeah, we I know mean, the truth. I think it, yeah, it's just hard because it just seems like. It's because you're coming from that reporter background where you feel like everything should be public knowledge. We should all know everything. Uh, that is true. Yes, because it's like, you know, you get so many more tips. But apparently, you know, if you're getting 60,000, you probably wouldn't want another, you know. And they did eventually release the tie information. Yeah, but, but it not just took a long time. until 1991 and it was only after a book was coming out that they had, that they were kind of like, okay, well. We got scooped. We oh, there are it. so many books, by the way, that are about possible D.B. Cooper identities, like different people that there there are speculations out there about who D.B. Cooper really is. And there are several books that actually name individuals. But the FBI has not identified a suspect. So none of those are, are official. If only we had those cigarette butts. Yeah, that could change the whole <laughs> yeah. the whole thing. But... You know, then we wouldn't have this great mystery and we wouldn't be able to talk about what ifs. And that's part of the fun, too, is like thinking about, you know, thumbing your nose at the man. You know, it's like, did he get away with it? We'll never know. Well, maybe we will. But 
for today, we won't know. So we'll have a link up to the Citizen Sleuths website if you want to try to look at all this evidence and see what you think. Who do you think D.B. Cooper is? You can find that at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. And we just really want to, I know we've been doing, talking more about this, about going and, and making a review for us. It would mean so much if you would go write a review on iTunes. We know you're busy and it just means so much to us. So thank you. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs> <laughs>